Hello, welcome to Kind Mind and our 104th episode, Egalitarian Inquiry and the Edge of Knowledge. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who support this work on Patreon. And if you'd like to join us there, you can do so for as little as $5 a month to help keep this content flowing. And to access bonus content, you can do that at patreon.com kindmind. There's also a link in the description. Please allow me to add a little more context in this intro, and then we'll transition to the recorded talk from last summer, which was recorded outdoors. So you can hear some nature sounds and some birds, but I think the audio voice is clear enough. Understanding the nature of knowledge has been a timeless pursuit for thinkers and seekers throughout history. This branch of study in philosophy is known as epistemology. There is an interplay between the empirical side of our sensory perception and experience and our intellectual conceptualizations of that input and the wider notion of consensus objective truth. The limitations, complexities here and the transformative power inherent in this quest for knowledge could never be understated. Our classical standards and rigors of scientific research dictate how to examine phenomena from a detached position so as not to interfere with the natural processes in the world around us. In other words, to objectively control and predict phenomena. And that makes sense within a relative framework, but please consider that we may never be able to fully stand outside the world and its apparent parts in order to objectively examine something or some event as truly separate from ourselves. Power dynamics play a significant role in the production and dissemination of knowledge. Institutionalized structures, privileges, and biases can influence whose knowledge is centered and whose perspectives are excluded. Recognizing and challenging these imbalances is vital to foster a more inclusive and equitable knowledge ecosystem. The replication crisis underscores this point within the scientific community, particularly prominent in the fields of psychology, but also affecting other disciplines. There has been a growing awareness that a significant number of experimental studies were difficult or even impossible to replicate or reproduce the results, I mean, by subsequent research. And this raised concerns about the reliability of many published findings calling into question the robustness of the scientific method as traditionally practiced. Another key factor here contributing to the replication crisis is publication bias, which is the preference for publishing only positive or novel findings, as well as selective reporting of results influenced by money and corporations, small sample sizes leading to false positives, and overall lack of transparency in some research methodologies. The most important reform yet, though, is newer requirements for studies to be registered in advance. This involves pre-registration of studies and the pre-publication of their research protocols in public uh, registries, so they're accessible to anyone. Pre-registration includes detailing the study's hypotheses, methodology, and data analysis, the plan, before the research begins. And this practice aims to bring transparency and also builds bridges to future research and genuine progress on the knowledge front. Because while the null hypothesis is not a sexy headline, it's absolutely crucial for an attempt to explain the laws of nature and where to look next. I reference many times in this talk philosopher Michel Foucault because he added a hyphen between the words knowledge and power. Not as in the more knowledge you learn, the more power you wield in the world, 
but rather the more power you wield in the world, the more knowledge you can devise to control what others learn. We might consider the restorative potential of egalitarian inquiry and the implications of its obstruction. What I mean by this is some research methodologies require significant resources such as labor, money, and time to gain access to knowledge or its construction. So who is able to participate and how might this process evolve differently among various ways that societies organize themselves? Research within a plutocratic society or a communistic or nomadic society. I designed a mental model that helps me think about the concept of knowledge and not what to think, but how to think about the facts and associated claims that humans make. Remember, talking about science is not science. So I call this tool the holistic relational embedded theory of knowledge because we the knowers are always embedded within the knowable universe. There are five points represented by words embedded within the word knowledge. The first word is know. What does it mean to know something? Who or what can know something? Is a brain required? Can a plant know? What is the standpoint of any knower? Does it matter that consciousness or the full process of experience is still very much mysterious to us? Also, to know means knowledge may be better realized as a verb than a noun. Because at least conventionally, it is dynamic and evolving. can also remind us that understanding someone or something is a live, in real time way of relating as opposed to a final destination or a possession. And two, now. What is the relationship of knowledge to time? What is true now versus before or in the future? Is all knowledge time-bound? Is that still knowledge? The earth revolves around the sun, but is that always true? What does it mean to call it knowledge or to know something if it is temporal? How long does something need to be true to be knowledge? Also important to consider the challenge of hermeneutics and how nothing is ever the same and we are not the same across time. The third word is owl. Though there are socially established disciplines which set the domains and define the criteria, the norms, as well as the deviance and what is pathological, or the credentials associated with different types of knowledge like medicine, law, economics, psychology, etc. Are there other ways of knowing? The owl is an intercultural symbol of wisdom and alertness because the owl is awake when others have fallen asleep. As a spirit totem, it can be emblematic for holding space for the myriad indigenous ways of knowing, such as dream, ritual, trance, stories, spiritual transmission, and other ecologically rooted pathways. They may not conform to Western or colonial protocols, but are still valid and valuable. The owl can also represent the occult because it comes out at night, and whether some knowledge requires spiritual maturity on our part, or moral responsibility prior to revelation. And the fourth word is led. What led to any knowledge? Was it the result of egalitarian inquiry? Who was free to participate in the production of this knowledge? And who was excluded? How is that process related to power? And who are the stakeholders? What is the function of any knowledge? And who will own it? And who will benefit from it? And ultimately, what led to that determination? And the last word is edge. The edge of knowledge. What horizon do we approach with any knowledge? Remember, knowledge is elusive. And also like a razor's edge, the more we think we know. How can knowledge take us beyond 
the boundaries of our prior understanding and uplift the whole community. Absolute truth may be like the horizon that ever expands as we attempt to approach it, only to orient us to new frontiers and the endless depth of our unknowing. I think Ambrose Bierce summarized it concisely with his sardonic definition in his Cynic's Word Book, which is later called The Devil's Dictionary. Quote, Knowledge is the small part of ignorance that we arrange and classify. End quote. So this holistic relational model is not meant to be a method for confirming knowledge, but a way of engaging with cultural humility and flexibility so our minds don't break when they're assaulted with information. Maybe wisdom is not in the finding of the right answers, but the asking of the right questions. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening to this intro, and I look forward to connecting soon. Take care. In Plato's Republic, there is a famous allegory of the cave. And in this story, Plato describes a scene where a group of prisoners are chained in this cave facing a wall from birth. And on the wall are images, shadows, and the prisoners cannot see what's going on behind them ever in their life. But behind them, there's a fire and their uh, captors are creating the shadows as they move and dance in front of the fire. They're casting the shadows onto the cave wall. Eventually, someone escapes. One of these prisoners escapes, sneaks out of the cave, is blinded by the sunlight outside of the cave, takes some time or needs some time to acclimate to the, the greater reality beyond the cave. But when that person returns to try to liberate the others, he has a hard time making a, that connection because in their minds, the reality is on the wall. Anything else that this person is saying is nonsense. And so it's both about how our senses can be limited or what we think of as reality could be limited to the dimension that that we as human beings with a, a body and a brain can engage with. And so this is maybe one of the the origin stories of epistemology, which is a, a branch of philosophy that deals with the study of knowledge and the nature of knowledge. So questions like, what is knowledge? What does it mean to say that you know something? And how does one know something? Is true knowledge something that's permanent or is it time bound? What is a fact? Will that fact always be a fact? And if it won't always be a fact, how long does something have to be a fact for something to be a fact? If I change my mind in an instant, is it a fact to say, you know, that I believe a certain thing? So you can think more about it yourself, because I think that this is relevant now more than ever, as we are bombarded with different perspectives on what is true about any. I mean, if we look around us right now and we are affected by smoke or whatever it is, smoke, pollution, smog, who's even 100% certain what it actually is in the air that makes it harder to see? We might think it's smoke from the Canadian wildfires, but I haven't seen the Canadian wildfires. Somebody, somebody knew somebody who did. My point is just that at what point do we need to see it or experience it for ourselves, whatever it is? If somebody says it's climate change that we're witnessing, well, now that term is very loaded. It means something socially, politically, ecologically. And I was looking at the National Park Service website, and it states on there that 85% of wildfires are caused by humans. So campfire mishaps, cigarette buds, and arson. Is arson climate change? anthropogenic climate change, which means human activity causing the climate to change. So I guess somebody starting a fire in a forest is caused by a human and that affects the climate and all that. But that's not really what we think of when we think of the problem of climate crisis, that somebody started a fire somewhere. Because they could have started a fire in any era and that would have been a problem for the climate. So what does it mean to, to say these things? And 
what do we mean when we say something is true or that's the true uh, story of something? And then the, the idea that this is caused by a wildfire, that kind of implies that it's something very natural. But climate change, we don't think of as something natural. We think of it as something unnatural. If the majority or 85% of all wildfires are caused by human activity, should we call them wildfires? <laughs> should we call them arson, you know, in, in the cases where it's intentional? So it's just a lot to think about when it, when it comes to the study of knowledge. Can it be objective or is it only influenced by the subjective factors? Like who is perceiving it? Who's interpreting it through what brain and what culture, what context, what bias and other personal perspectives? Epistemology, though, seeks to understand how we acquire knowledge, how we access it, and what actually constitutes it, and then how knowledge can be justified or how beliefs are justi justified, and how do we distinguish those from mere opinions. The word knowledge is kind of interesting, and, and its definition, one is facts, information, and the skills acquired by a person through experience or education. An alternative definition, though, is awareness. Awareness of something true or familiarity gained by direct experience. That one has a little bit more esoteric connotation, so we're going to investigate both. But the word itself, knowledge, comes from the root know, K-N-O-W, which is very similar to the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, and the Sanskrit word from the Himalayas, jnana, J-N-A-N-A. -A. Most experts say that it's a coincidence that no jnana and gnosis have the same sound because they came from different parts of the world. But all three mean something similar, having something to do with insight and awareness. And the word jnana in Sanskrit becomes vijnana, which means applied knowledge. And then there's pragnana. P-R-A means beyond or supreme. Pragnana loosely translates into English as wisdom. That's a spiritual term in Sanskrit. It goes beyond the five senses. It's something that's revealed in deep meditation or in contemplation or mystical experience. So while jnana and gnosis emerged from Greek and Sanskrit origins and different linguistic contexts, it's intriguing to me that they actually share pretty much the same profound meaning. Next, I want to talk about how knowledge is acquired or produced, rather. But let me begin by challenging our conventional ways of getting at knowledge. One notable perspective comes from what's referred to as post-structuralism. It's a movement in philosophy that goes beyond the conventional framework of knowledge. And this happened in the mid-20th century. Those philosophers have argued that facts are not purely objective and independent of human interpretation. That there's no realm that exists and is always that way and is some objective truth that exists with or without humans. That our mind is so embedded with that, so entangled with that, you can't actually pull the two apart and say, no, there's something that's true whether I'm here or not. And yet almost all of our scientific history is about trying to be objective. And, and some of these post-structuralists are saying, well, I don't even know if that's possible. You could imagine as a metaphor, my body or your body is the totality of all that is. And so then what does it mean to objectively study my hand or objectively know my heart? What would be true knowledge that's independent, independent of what it is that's being studied? You are that which you're studying on some level. This is evident in physics in the wave particle duality of light when quantum researchers try to observe the double slit experiment where they're sending light waves down an accelerator and it has two different pathways it can take. When unobserved or unmeasured, there's evidence that it goes through both pathways, which is only possible as a wave, not localized. And when the researchers are observing the light, it becomes a particle and goes through one or the other which 
leads to thought experiments like Schrodinger's cat, where the cat is both dead and not dead in Schrodinger's box. It all depends on whether or not you open the door. The post-structuralists argue that facts are socially constructed with specific cultural, linguistic, and historical contexts. So according to this view, facts are influenced by whatever our societal, societal norms and power structures and individual perspectives might be, leading to multiple interpretations of something we would consider to be a fact. And that meaning is not universal. There's no inherent meaning in anything. It's socially constructed. They challenge the notion of binary oppositions and essential categories. I've said this before, but once upon a time, sociologists and other scientists believed in essentialism when it came to race, that race was something fundamental until they found that there was no biological or genetic underpinnings to support that there are actually different categories of race. And during that time, in the 1800s, Irish was considered a separate race of humans. So was Austrian. Like a country was thought to be an essential category of biology. Of course, a country is a social construct. Later on, they all became one Caucasian race. And, and it's still thought by many people that these are essential categories. The difference is are largely in the way humans adapt to different environments, but even more importantly, how people are treated by other humans. So the disparities that we might see in health are associated more with how people are oppressed. Others might argue, well, you know, don't people of different races have like different genetics, different heights, different features, different physical features? So isn't that an argument that there's something essential about what happens if you live at a particular altitude for tens of thousands of years? You have different levels of oxygen. You, you have a different, a different experience. But that's, that doesn't mean that if you put other humans in that environment and those conditions for thousands and thousands of years, that they wouldn't end up similar or wouldn't experience similar outcomes. So there's a few examples. But I want to point to one particular philosopher from the 20th century, uh, Michel Foucault who studied the connection of power to knowledge. His examination emphasized how power dynamics in the society actually shape the production of knowledge. Knowledge isn't something that is just out there for everybody to get at if they were able to, but that it's produced, that it's manufactured to some extent, or in some cases, and generated, not simply discovered. Okay, And then it's maintained, according to his philosophy, by specific social and institutional frameworks. So let's say media or academia or governments or corporations or races like we we're talking about before or castes or classes in uh, the socioeconomic structures. So not just top down, not just like there's a, a hegemon at the top with all the power oppressing everybody below, but this is more like a matrix knowledge power, knowledge hyphen power or power hyphen knowledge that is embedded and woven into the fabric of civilization. And it's not just coming from one direction towards another. And therefore, it manifests in different ways in, in his examinations in hospitals, in healthcare, in prisons. And he was specifically interested in discipline and punishment. And this matrix of domination is subtle and pervasive. Along with Derrida, another French philosopher, they also included the role of language. How we speak has a lot to do with how this is shaped. So in this study of systems of punishment and deterrence from what is deemed criminal, but what is knowledge about crime isn't true in all times, in all places, in all cultures, right? Because it might be a crime to kill a person during peace in the world, while it's a crime to not kill a person during war, as was the case during some major wars in the 20th century or during drafts and draft dodging. These philosophers demonstrated how the lack of universality of these so-called facts end up shaping 
which knowledge we consider to be valid. Foucault had this concept that he coined the panopticon before the digital revolution. So in the 20th century, he was saying that people have the sense that they're being observed or being recorded or being surveilled is enough in the right systems to manage human behavior, that it will deter certain behaviors and it will promote others based on what the prevailing knowledge is of that culture, of that time and place. And the reason why I say that's so intriguing is because phones and cameras are everywhere. And of course, that affects how people behave in society, knowing that I could be filmed at any time. Individuals conform based on who controls or who owns this knowledge. The knowledge can be weaponized and reinforce systems of power and control in the society. He further analyzed the development of different disciplines, let's say like medicine, psychology, or in his study, criminology, and how these different domains establish their own techniques or their own sets of criteria for what's considered valid knowledge. They end up defining what's normal and what's deviant and what's pathological, thereby influencing how individuals get classified or how they're treated or how they're controlled in the case of the panopticon. But as Foucault is pointing out, it's the domains, it's the, the stakeholders, it's the power brokers that help to produce the knowledge and then wield these different types of knowledge. So knowledge or purported knowledge is used to achieve something in society, which leads me to a next point, understanding the injustices associated with epistemology or epistemic injustice. And I'd like to direct your attention to the concept of egalitarian inquiry, which is the beginning of the scientific method, observing and testing and experimenting. Well, the tests and experiments that we have to do for something like climate change or COVID, it requires massive amounts of resources, right? So who gets to participate in the production of knowledge on those scales? Or when you think about the historical oppression of the native people of the Americas and whether or not they can actually participate in the methodology to produce knowledge as established by the colonizers, which is the scientific method, which is peer-reviewed studies published in the, the right journals. If they don't have the resources to do the investigative work to produce the knowledge that conforms to those methodologies, then is what they know valid? To so many people in the institutions of knowledge, no. And it's already unfair or unjust. So we have to find ways, and there's a movement in social work to develop community-based participatory research, which means groups and organizations who care about egalitarian inquiry, meaning I don't want to just accept this knowledge because of the study that was done by the corporation or the study that was done by the government. I want to know who all the stakeholders are and whether or not they had a role or, had, or were able to participate in the production of this knowledge. And if they weren't, we ought to be able to question that. Right now, this week, there's litigation going on about the development of a lithium mine in Northwest Nevada. It will be the country's largest lithium mine. It might even become the largest lithium mine in the world. And here's where this gets really nuanced. The Paiute tribes of the American West are currently protesting. And a particular group called the Reno Sparks Indian Colony are arguing that the construction of this mine, even though it's federal land, is on their ancestral and sacred sites. The particular site at Thacker Pass in Nevada is where there was an 1865 massacre of Paiute Indians. And so to them, it's a holy land. Even though in the media, like these issues are presented as more straightforward, this side or that side, 
It's one thing for there to be a movement to protest an oil pipeline through the Dakotas and the reservations that it's adjacent to, because we think of oil as part of the problem, fossil fuel. It's another thing when lithium is presented as within the knowledge of environmental science as the solution to climate change. But lithium, the lithium mine is going to disrupt the ancestral land of the native peoples. Well, the leader of that group, I, I quote him by saying, once again, native people are being asked to step out of the way of American progress. That's a trip. Imagine from their point of view, but from you know a progressive perspective and this concept of transferring or the transition to green energy, according to that agenda, it requires the strategic mineral of lithium. But where do you get it? South America, China, and what does it mean to keep importing it? But they'd make a clear case that this mine will disrupt the desert. It will likely extinct a sacred native flower. And does that matter? But how insane must it be for those people to listen to these developers, these corporations, Lithium Americas, multinational corporation, say, yeah, I know when we came here before to mine the earth, that caused the problem. But now we got to mine the earth again to fix the problem. We asked you to trust us before, and we're asking you to trust us again. Not, you know, uproot Naperville, right? Or Beverly Hills or Malibu. And what's next? I'm not saying that this shouldn't happen or should happen. I'm just saying that's how complicated knowledge is. On NPR, they're saying, well, you can't develop energy without some impact. It's sort of like, well, you know we're gonna we we have to travel, we have to build, we have to develop, so we need lithium. And probably from their perspective is you could also just stop destroying the earth, you know. But we don't think that way. I mean the the colonial mind, the imperial mind. So if you're not familiar with, with this, the lithium is for the, the batteries to power electric vehicles. And that mine the, co the company saying, well, will be enough for like 1 million, 1 million Teslas or 1 million electric vehicles a year for 40 years. What about the bikes? What about the buildings? What about the, the powering of factories if we're going to convert that? Will we need thousands of mines? Will we need to build a lithium mine everywhere there's lithium deposits on every sacred place or become dependent on another superpower? From their point of view, they already know, like, this is just the beginning of a whole nother uh, scene. And if you ask yourself, well, who's interested in this succeeding? Lithium Americas and, uh, and their stockholders and the government? And whoever gets the contracts for the green revolution, right? That'll be pretty profitable for them. This isn't an argument against renewable energy. But all these batteries also have to be powered by some energy. Just because the car doesn't have exhaust doesn't mean that there's not exhaust when you plug the car in at night. It's just you don't see it. And so that, that's another, I think, backward kind of way of trying to solve climate change. What if we can just better hide the pollution so that nobody feels guilty about it. I mean, that's what we did with our shit. We, you know, we created toilets and we just put it somewhere else. And then we had to figure out how to clean the water. And then we had to put chemicals in the water. And then that ends up becoming toxic. And we put the garbage just out front. When you just dumped it out in your yard, it created the bubonic plague. So well, what if we take it somewhere and hide it? Oh, but where will we put that? Historically, they put it by the poor people. Now they put it by uh, black communities and indigenous communities. And in New Orleans, there, is a, there was a housing a neighborhood that was developed in the second half of the 20th century called Gordon Plaza, I believe. It was designed on a closed landfill. Landfill had reached capacity, so they remodeled the landfill, built all these houses for cheap, and um, invited black people to move in there in like the 60s and 70s during the civil rights movement. Pretty quickly, they started getting sick. Cancer, 
some of the parents would talk about their kid getting injured, trying to play in the yard because they would roll around and glass would stab them. Or they try to start a garden and one inch into the ground, toxic sludge starts coming up. But the government said, prove it. The developer said, prove it to us that it's toxic. What, what are 57 families going to do to generate a scientific report? Do they even know how to do that? So they don't have the resources or the tools or the conforming knowledge to get justice. And, it, and, it, and it's gone on till just like last year, there's been some, some settlement after decades and decades of uh, toxic exposure. So the onus of proof is always on the marginalized, which do not have equal access to inquiry. They don't have the resources. The polluters sit back and, and say, we don't have to prove to you that it's safe. You have to prove to us that it's dangerous. And that forms the knowledge base. So that's what I mean by egalitarian inquiry. A couple other issues here are implicit bias and credibility. There have been studies that have shown, depending on who's speaking, the speaker could say the same thing, but depending on the, the credentials, the culture, the ethnicity, the audience interprets it differently. There's something called stereotype threat. Uh, research on stereotype threat has conducted experiments to examine how Pre-existing negative stereotypes of an individual can affect their ability to communicate knowledge, even. If you've internalized some of the stereotypes, a person can actually be psychologically limited in their ability to communicate science. Um, and a third one in social psychology experiments, participants have been assigned to act as, expert, as experts or novices in the study without the knowledge of the subjects. And then the, the researchers measure the perceived credibility or the weight that they give to the knowledge claims. And all of this ends up shaping the way we interpret the facts. Looking at social research from indigenous investigators, they have expressed, and I've talked to people in my training in social work, there's a few other ways of knowing that are sacred to indigenous traditions. That includes dreams, visions, ceremonies, stories, and ecology. That the earth has wisdom, has knowledge, and can communicate it in different ways to people. But none of that is really valid in a Western model. There's a story from Native American wisdom about the vanishing of a sacred buffalo. And the elders send four young individuals who represent the four winds from the four directions to investigate and bring back their knowledge so that the elders can decide what to do or what happened. The North Wind representative comes back and says, yeah, the buffalo are gone because of a drought. The East Wind representative says, now, it wasn't a drought. There was a great predator that led to the disappearance of the buffalo. The representative from the south wind said, no, 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 it's not either of those things. There was a great migration to greener pastures. And then the, the west wind representative said, no, it, it, it wasn't any of those that caused the disappearance of the buffalo. It was a spiritual influence. The buffalo transformed into a sacred being and... You just can't see the buffalo. But now the buffalo is a spirit that's watching over the tribe. And so like this, the elders listened and concluded that it was a combination of all these, that none of those are completely true and none of them are completely false. Sort of like the parable of the blind men and the elephant where one touches the leg and says an elephant's like a pillar and one touches the body and says it's like a wall and one touches the trunk and says it's like a snake and and so on. And they're all arguing, but neither are, are, are completely right or completely wrong. Another metaphor for this is the mirror and reflection. Knowledge can be metaphorically seen as the mirror itself reflecting our understanding of the world. And so the reflection is always limited and there may be aspects that remain hidden or distorted whatever we're seeing 
is like a symbol or an approximation of what is true. I like to think, though, of knowledge more like a mosaic. That a mosaic can be appreciated or interpreted in a myriad of ways. You could step back and go, ah, oh, the whole thing kind of looks like this. Or you could go up close and go like, oh, you know, this is all made with bottle caps. And each bottle cap has like a, an interesting message. Or it's made with newspaper clippings or magazine clippings. And at the same time, a mosaic has endless possibilities for continuation. You can always add on to a mosaic and make it something even grander. So that's how I think of knowledge. And I put this in my mind together as a, a holistic relational theory of knowledge. And that's just including everything I talked about tonight. Challenges with standpoint. What I'm perceiving or what I'm studying, what does it say about my positionality as a, as a man? So many of the people I talk about from Plato to Buddha, the people that I reference, I would say like nine times out of 10, it's a man. Is it, doesn't that have something, say something about the production of knowledge? Why am I not able to reference and quote more women? It's because historically, you know, women didn't have the same access to develop knowledge or investigate knowledge with you know, patriarchal systems in religion or in societies or caste or feudal systems and so on. So standpoint, subject and object. In post-structuralism, there was another philosopher, George Berkeley. He proposed that reality or what we think of as reality is actually composed of ideas and perceptions only in the mind. If there's no mind, there's no reality outside of the mind. And external objects exist only insofar as they can be perceived. From this perspective, facts are closely tied to subjective experiences and cannot be separated from the perceiving mind. And this is very close to the philosophy of Advaita Vedanta in India. Advaita means not to. So it's translated into English as the philosophy of non-duality that there's not actually parts to the universe, that the universe is more like a hologram or a holographic universe. It only appears to have parts, as evidenced in science by studies like the light and photon and wave duality, that a wave doesn't really have parts, but it could appear to be like a particle, depending on the mind. And everything that we do, if anything that we do with our observation changes what we're experiencing, then we can never separate ourselves from it. That if we're that embedded into the universe, if we're that tied to everything else, if we're hitched to everything else in the universe, and even though we feel independent or insignificant, that we're never separate, then what can really be objective truth? And so that, that is the connection between Western philosophy and Advaita Vedanta. So anyways, I put all this together into a holistic theory of knowledge, which incorporates the standpoint, the positionality, the subject, the object, illusions, time. If something is only true for a limited amount of time, how true is it? To say that the earth revolves around the sun. It's true, but it's only true for a limited amount of time. There will come a time, right, where the earth won't do that. So what does it mean to say that it does that? Do I have to include the, the footnote that it won't always do that? Because if I say it does that, Am I actually not telling the complete truth? And then cultural relativity and context. And finally, the post-structural concerns of power and language. And so to wrap this up, I thought of a really fun way to communicate all of this holistic theory of knowledge, finding words within words. So in taking the word knowledge, these points in this theory can be underscored by the word know. K-N-O-W, within knowledge. The knowing refers to awareness. It represents the process of understanding. Second word is now, N-O-W. Now suggests the time. What is the time of the knowledge? The present moment is emphasized here, and it alludes to the idea that knowledge is relevant and applicable in the here and now when we're talking about knowledge. I was thinking, you know, how did these presidential um, election polls leading up to elections, especially the, the Trump-Clinton election, 
How are they so wrong? Well, there's a, there's a couple of reasons. They could have been right, but if they were only right that day, the very next day, people changed their mind, then what can, what can we really say about that knowledge of those studies? Because those polls were presented and they would say stuff like with a, a confidence interval of this percentage and standard deviation of this percentage. And then the results were way outside of that. So there could have been a lot of errors or it could have simply been that it was true for that time. Any study we do, it's really only true for that time. Any survey research that's conducted, all we can really say is that's what it says about that person or all of those people at that time. Because all those people's minds could have changed. The email stuff with Comey came out with Hillary Clinton right before the election. And maybe that changed things too. Okay, and then the third one is edge. The edge implies the quest for knowledge ought to take us to the limits of our understanding and ought to take us to a vulnerable place, to the edge of our comfort zone. Knowledge is like a journey to the horizon only to realize that's not the edge. And then a new edge emerges. The fourth one is lead. Know, now, edge, lead. The lead in knowledge, L-E-D. And... And so this speaks to the power dynamics. What led up to this knowledge? There's different stakeholders. What is the context? What is the paradigm of this knowledge? Whose power has influenced the interpretation of this knowledge? All these factors take it into account to determine for yourself what kind of inter interpretation you want to take of a particular knowledge. And then the last one is the owl, O-W-L, the bird. Know, now, edge, lead, and owl. Wisdom. You know, not just conventional wisdom, but indigenous wisdom as uh, symbolized by animals, by nature. But it also points to mysticism and alternative ways of knowing and the integration and respect for those ways of knowing. I think we do ourselves a great disservice by dismissing Wisdom traditions, indigenous uh, knowledge, what was preserved by occult traditions. The idea of the occult was that knowledge isn't always safe in the wrong hands. I could give you two versions of this. Let's say a scientist is in the lab and discovers a way to use energy that can immediately destroy the earth or save the planet. What do you do with that discovery? You, you just, do you just publish it in, you know, in a journal right away? Or do you have to maybe consult other disciplines, economic disciplines, political disciplines, moral disciplines, and so on, before you decide the function of the knowledge? And so in the end, last part of this holistic relational theory, the function of knowledge matters what we're going to do with that, how we're going to apply that. Another version of the occult could be, let's say some explorers discover some ancient ruins uh, in a jungle and inside are scrolls like the Dead Sea Scrolls. But on these scrolls are specific instructions for how to manipulate space and time. And if you say these words and you sit in this posture and you have these drugs or these plants, and it's at this time, and it's with this sunlight or this moonlight, portal will open up. Who knows? What do you do with that? And so whoever has that knowledge has power. Or like Foucault said, knowledge power. Let's say that those scrolls were developed over thousands of years by mystics, hermetic scribes, that kept it concealed, knowing that it's too risky for just anyone to have it. That's the concept of wisdom in the owl coming out at night, requiring a mature mind, a blossoming. It's more about revelation. And so in sacred texts, the concept of revelation means that it, it can't all happen at once. Even in uh, like Western religions, some sects that understood this, like the Gnostics and Christianity, there's a book from the 14th century called The Cloud of Unknowing, written by an anonymous mystic. And there's 
poetry in this book about how you have to give up your intellectual pursuit of knowledge. You have to give up the ego. You have to give up the fattening of the mind. The fattening of the mind is like the acquiring of possessions. The knowledgeable person without maturity is like a greedy person. But the mature mind is like a steward. The mature mind, according to the cloud of unknowing, is one that lets wisdom flow through them because they're more of a conduit for the universal wisdom or spirit that's all pervading. And I brought a quote from that book. Do not think that you are learning to know God. Rather think that you are being known by him. And so I think for those mystics, God, Jesus, they were just words for truth, for reality. And then in Sufi Islam, there's a concept called fana, which involves letting go of intellectual knowledge and embracing a state of mystical union. So Sufism, like in the poetry of Rumi or Hafiz, is all about self-denial, not like punishing oneself, but surrendering uh, the service of one's ego for the sake of revelation of wisdom. It's described, Fana is described as a spiritual death or dissolution of the concept or the construct of a self, a self that like in, exists somehow in the mind, independent of biology and nature. Yeah, we have a body, but the body is a community. The body is trillions of cells, and the trillions of cells are all operating based on the laws of nature. And somewhere in between all of that, because of the phenomenology of cognition, we think, I must be something beyond that also, or independent of all that. In this state, the seeker transcends the limitations of individual perception, thereby merging with the divine and experiencing a profound sense of unity and oneness.